Let's go ahead and get started this morning. We have some folks that are going through the membership class that would normally be here. Uh, but what we're going to do with that, the membership class, is they will take the first two weeks with the elders, uh, learning about the history of the Free Church, both from a global perspective and then the history of EFC in Oroville. And then the third week, I'm going to invite them in to join us, where we will take a look at our confessional statement and talk a little bit about theological distinctives of the evangelical preachers. So for that one week, they will join us as part of the membership class. And it gets a chance to talk about the formative and fundamental doctrines like justification, sanctification, inerrancy of Scripture, the holiness of the Trinity, things like that, as we go through our statement of faith. So just... Give you a word of warning, if, as it were, of what is coming. Uh, but as we begin today, let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Thank you, Father, for the opportunity to be under the authority of your word. Thank you for the privilege of knowing you. And Father, we want to know you more by knowing your word. So continue to teach and guide us. We pray for those that are taking the membership class. We pray that this would be a step for them that leads to fruitfulness and faithfulness in their lives. Uh, but we pray the same thing for us as we study your word here, knowing that we can trust you. And so we do. We commit this hour to you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So I begin with a question that is rhetorical in nature because they ask the question is to answer it. <laughs> have you ever been misunderstood? Or have you ever done something that was misunderstood by someone else? Are you wrong? <laughs> have you ever been falsely accused of something who misunderstood your actions? Have you ever had to give up on a project that you really wanted to keep going on, but you had to give up before you were ready to do so? Well, I think all of us would answer yes to all those questions, and if so, we can begin to understand a little bit of the situation the Apostle Paul found himself in, and what he was thinking and feeling as he was writing to the church in Thessalonica. Uh, he wrote these two epistles, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, to a church um, that was undergoing some struggle early on, and he has to address some... Um, Information. So let's take a little bit about where is the city of Thessalonica. It still is an actual city today in modern Greece, but it was a major city in ancient Greece. It was on a major trade route. Um, and it, it, there's an ancient city of Therma, which I don't think shows up on there. But Therma, where we get the, the Greek word for water, hot water, thermostat, thermos, think of things like that. Um, and this city had warm water, as you might expect, and it was located on the Aegean Sea. The Aegean Sea is not listed, but that body of water that is around Thessalonica. And it was around 315 BC that Cassander was the king of Macedonia. Macedonia was a part of Greece, if you will. Um, and that's when the city of Thessalonica was founded, close to the city of Therma. It grew in influence and eventually absorbed Therma into what the largest city of what it's known today. And it was on a trade route called the Ignatian Way, which was a major east-west route in the Roman Empire. It was a large city in Macedonia. It's still a large city in Greece today. I would love the opportunity before I see the Lord face to face to be able to visit Greece and see some of these cities and, and have an idea of what happened back then. But it was a cosmopolitan city. It was an economic center. It was a cultural center. 
Um, it was a seaport. It was on a major trade route. So you can imagine the confluence of commerce and military power, if you will, economic power, cultural influence. It had a wealthy class. And so it was a city of standing in the Roman Empire in the first century. And because it was a cosmopolitan city, there were religions that came from all over. So we have some guests with us today, so we need to make sure we get the notes that we're going through. These, I have to say, these are among my favorite guests ever. They're going to get the gold star at the end of the day. <laughs> A little, little, little bit of nepotism, as we have my daughter and son-in-law with us today. Well, not only did Thessalonica have just the usual smorgasbord of Roman and Greek gods and goddesses, but because of its proximity to other places, there were ideas that floated from other places. Because of the trade routes, it would actually be trade with parts of North Africa and other parts of, of Asia Minor. And because it was a city that could be accessed fairly easily, a lot of philosophers came there. You know, anyone that gets a new religion, anyone that gets a new philosophy, they want to get to the big cities. They want to promote their ideas. And so this would have been going on uh, in the city of Thessalonica as well, very early on. It included traveling teachers who would go through the city and try to win over this, the people with their new message about a God who could bring judgment or blessing. And these people would come around and collect money. So, as a result of some of the confusion that happened in Thessalonica, the Roman government actually outlawed all religious practice of what they called predictions. So there were these soothsayers, there were these uh, philosophers coming in and, and making all kinds of wild predictions about what was coming, what the world would be like, and if you pay them a little money, they'll give you the secret to their success. Now, all of this sounds like what we hear today because there is nothing new under the sun. The devil doesn't have to come up with new tools. The same ones keep working again and again. Um, so, these traveling teachers who would bring their religious messages weren't just seen as religious messengers, they were seen as a threat to the social order. They were seen as a threat to the order of Rome, to the order of the city, to the, free, uh, the, fair, uh, the trade that was going on there. So that's all the background that's going on in Thessalonica for, de for decades and decades and decades of this different philosophies, different gods, different religions, wealth, a culture, literature, political power, strategic importance. It kind of sets us up a little bit about what happens when Paul gets there. Okay? So let's go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 17 and let's read what happens to Paul as he gets to Thessalonica. So if someone has a good reading voice, go ahead and read. Let's say the first ten verses. I'll cut it to the next paragraph. That's okay. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. 
Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I preach to you, is the Christ. Some of them were persuaded, and a great multitude of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women, joined Paul and Silas. But the Jews, who were not persuaded, became envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace, and gathering a mob, set all the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, and sought to bring them out to the people. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Jason has harbored them, and these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. So when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Okay. So we hear, we can hear what's happening. Paul, you know, is preaching. He's having an impact. He's had a second missionary journey that he arrives here in the city of Thessalonica. He's only there a few weeks, and he is summarily sent on his way. He goes into the synagogue, which was the place he always liked to start, and some believe, some uh, join the the way. Uh, he, he, when he writes to this church in 1 Thessalonians, he will say in verse 9 of chapter 1 that many of them had turned from God, turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And that's, that's a perfect picture of what repentance looks like. It is turning away from the way of life that had before and turning towards God. And so there were some that had heard and had turned. They were converted. They were now followers of the gospel. Um, we don't know how long Paul spent there. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9 says that he, he, he talks about his hard work among them. That gives the idea that he must have been there a little while, but all we have is this three-week uh, story in Acts chapter 17. Uh, he, we read between the lines that he paid his own way because he didn't want to be a burden. He was a tent maker after all. Um, but what happens? The harvest comes in. Somebody's upset, right? And it's the same old, same old game, right? The ones that have put Jesus on the tree, they don't want anything to do with Jesus. So everywhere Paul goes, they make sure they follow him. Sometimes they literally did follow him from city to city. Other ways, they just spread the word through the synagogues. Look, there is this guy that's coming. They're infuriated. And so what do they do? Do they go out and engage in honest debate and say, let's set up a public forum in the, in the amphitheater and let's call CNN and let's, let's do this in a fair and honest way? No, they go down to Wine Alley, right? And they gather a bunch of thugs and they say, let's go and rough them up and, and let, I mean, you know, the, the, the dishonesty that religious leaders can perform is just, it, it, it's almost bottomless. So they chase them out. Well, they couldn't find Paul and Silas, we're told. So they go and they grab Jason, poor guy. You know, he just gets pu pulled up in the mob and they say, and, and Linda read for us, these men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. And Jason is welcomed into their house. They are defying Caesar's decrees, saying there's another king. Well, as I said in the introduction, this was not simply a charge of disturbing the peace. 
This was a common thing that Christians ran into, was that Caesar would, would not allow any parallel, any opponent. You had to confess Caesar as Lord. And so if they're coming and saying, uh-uh, Jesus is Lord, this is more than just a religious declaration. This is a political challenge. So this is sedition, as it were, against the state, trying to overthrow the government. Um, perhaps, as we can imagine, with Paul's preaching and reasoning from the Scriptures, what would he talk about concerning Jesus? What are some things that you can imagine over those three weeks? He's reasoning from the Scriptures. So what would be some of the things that he would point out about Jesus? Fulfilled prophecy. Fulfilled prophecy. Jewish heritage. Jewish heritage. What kind of Messiah was Jesus? Suffering servant, but who was the true king? Came to set up a new kingdom? A kingdom that will last forever? These are threatening words to political leaders. Part of what's behind Matthew 2 when Herod hears that one who was born king of the Jews has come. There's, there's political mess afoot. So, this is a challenge to them, and what do they do? Well, bond is posted. They take security, was the word that was used. It means they paid money, paid in bond. Let Paul go. And the believers say, we've got to get Paul and Silas out of here. So they escort him out of town. That's why I had you read verse 10. They send him ahead to the next town. Um, but this is a young church. If, in fact, it started during these three weeks, this is a young church. And here Paul comes in, like a hurricane almost, preaching the gospel. People are coming to Christ. He's really engaged with the Jewish leaders. People are coming to Christ. And then seemingly at the first sign of trouble, He's down the road. Just like all these other guys that come through. Right? At least that would be possible in the background of what's going on. So, we read in, in the book of Acts that they actually continue to follow Peter, uh, Paul all the way to Berea. And they continue to harass him. And the Bereans show themselves to be more noble than the Thessalonians. Because the Thessalonians didn't want to engage and study the scriptures, but the Bereans did. That's why the Bereans are affirmed right after that. Okay? So, Paul then, because he was the pastor, because he was the shepherd, because he was the missionary, he's concerned about what's happening there. Uh, according to uh, Acts 17, continues on to Athens, and while he is in Athens, he sends um, Paul. Paul goes to Corinth, he meets Timothy and Silas, and now words will start to go back to Thessalonica. Sorry, I've got to catch up on the history here. And then that is how the letter got to them. So there'd be some questions. Why did you leave so soon? Why did you get out of the city so soon? Did you leave us? Um, now think of the context. The context is one of one traveling religious philosopher after another coming through with the collection plate open and then taking off and people getting deceived by all kinds of ideas and this amalgamation of ideas that's going on in the town. And then Paul comes through, and he's only there for a few weeks, gets a little tough, and he's gone. And we were told in Acts that some of the well-to-do women, as it were, what was the term that was used? Um, leading women. Hint, hint, read between the lines, probably helped Paul financially, or helped the church there. Um... So the, the believers, they don't, what's up with this Paul? Is he deceitful? Is he the real thing? Is this just another charlatan who's a traveling preacher? Um, were you just coming just to fleece us and go to the next town? Um, what makes you any different? And so Paul's feeling the tension as he continues on down the road, 
to Berea and back home around to Athens as he continues down the road on his missionary journey and he, he decides I've got to write these folks and that's kind of the background and behind what's going on and writing with probably some intensity and some um, in a hurried manner I'm trying to think of the word I can't think of it now in a hurried manner where he writes to them okay so what does all this happen well Paul is the one that wrote it there's not much discussion about it it's very clearly a Pauline letter we have some things that have been discovered in archaeology that really help us to date this book um, Paul had gone to Corinth for 18 months. We're told that in Acts 18. And um, in AD 51, you can see that there, Paul faces charges in Corinth from the Jews. He doesn't mention this in 1 Thessalonians. Now, he wouldn't necessarily have to, but this is one of the indicators that he probably wrote it before these events. He wanted to take care of what's going on in the church in Thessalonica. Now he's got to deal with what's going on in Corinth. Seems to be one of the indicators that he wrote before AD 50 or AD 51 when suddenly he's in, he's in trouble in another city and would write to them. So this seems to be an early letter that Paul wrote. If Galatians, at least in my understanding, was the first book that he wrote, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians were all going to be written around the same time, around 50 AD, early 50s. This would be one of his early books that he would have written. Uh, he was in Corinth as he writes it. He's at the end of his second missionary journey. He needs to deal with some problems that are going on in Thessalonica. Take it how you part it. And that's going to be part of the ethos, part of the flavor that comes behind the letter as he writes. So, he wants to put them at ease. So, you have this in your notes. It's a general breakdown on what he is talking to them. He's defending the fact that he is a, an apostle. Separating himself from these other charlatans who have come through, who have tried to fleece them. He said, look, I am a, I'm called of God. I'm an apostle. I'm set apart for preaching. Um, but now I need to encourage you. And we'll look at what are some of the ways that he encourages them. And what are the specific messages that he gives to them. Okay? So... We'll skip the preaching outline for now, but you can see the main things that he's worried about is, I came, I preached Christ. Christ is the Messiah. Christ is coming back. Live a holy life. Here's how you do it. Okay? Well, in the meantime, there was some confusion. What do you mean Jesus is coming back? What about those that have died? How are we to live in light of the fact that Jesus is coming back? And those are all part of what's involved in the letter. So when we get to the, the main themes, as it were, we look at chapter 1, verses 4 to 7. He shows the power of God in His Word. One of the main themes. He says, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you. Now, at that point we might ask the question, how do we know that they are chosen? What, what would come after that to show that they were chosen by God? Okay? Because we know that election is always tied to mercy, but election is always tied to initiative. And what does it say in verse 5? Because our gospel came to you, not only in word, but also in power, and the Holy Spirit with full conviction. How does he know that they're chosen? They responded to the gospel. They heard it. They turned away. They forsook. They got rid of their sins. They turned to Christ. And he put on verse 9. said so they turned away from Christ. There was a worldview transformation that took place in their lives. They were living according to these gods and gods of the Roman world. Now they're living for Christ. Okay? What's the result? 
verse 8. So it says, so you became part of an example. You became, verse 7 says, you became an example to the believers of Macedonia and Achaia. Verse 8, for not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. Do you hear the transforming power of the word preached? The gospel is a group of people's lives and it does. Not only is it setting them free from their idols, setting them free from their false worldview to give a biblical worldview, but now they're living in such a way that others are hearing about it. Shouldn't that be the impact of the gospel in all our lives? You know, that others hear about it, others see it, others recognize there's been a radical transformation. There's been an exchange, as it were, of location from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. We see this often in the uh, the letters of Paul. He says it's the preached word. It's the proclamation of the word that has an impact. Yeah, because it's God's word. That's why it's a blessing to be part of a church. It just really takes God at his word. He believes it is his word. And when God speaks, yes, Lord. (laughs) Yes. That's our response. Well, that's what's happening here. I came to you not only in word, but in power, and the Holy Spirit with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you. So now he's starting to say, look, remember who I was. He'll start to defend himself, present who he was. Okay? 4, verse 9, they, they themselves reported concerning us. Now, who is this? The ones that he sent with the letter, right? So, Silas or Sylvanus and Timothy. For they told me, Sylvanus and Timothy, the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. So the first thing is, the power of God is word. It's had an impact in your life. Look at what the word of God has done. You've turned from this wicked way of living. You're now recognizing that Christ is coming back. But then the second thing that seems to be behind what he is writing is, I have not forgotten you. Because that would have been on their minds as a threat. Why did you just leave? He just abruptly leaves after a few weeks. So these young Christians would have been left vulnerable to attacks from other religious leaders, prominent leaders in the church. And that's why I pointed out it said some women of high standing or important women in the church had become believers of all. Can you kind of imagine some of the conversations that might take place between those women and their husbands? Yes, yeah, see, just another one of those knuckleheads that fleece you. Okay? So Paul wants to pass, give pastoral concern and show them, look, I've not forgotten you. He says in verse 1 that his, his uh, chapter 2, verse 1, that his ministry was not a failure. Here he says, not in vain, same thing. Okay? Um, And he's starting to give his apostolic defense of who he really is. I came with pure motives. Verse 3, for our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. He said, I'm not coming just to line my pockets. In fact, he'll say later on, I worked hard among you. But, just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. Now these two verses here, verses 3 and 4, are dear to me. First of all, because I had the enormous privilege of studying at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, and that is the verse, 2 Timothy 2, 3 and 4, that is on the school model. Entrusted with the gospel. And when I celebrated... 
I don't care, it was 20 years, 25 years when I got the ring from crew, I forget. I had 2 second, second Thessalonians 1. Uh, second th- uh, first, first Thessalonians 2, 3, 4 engraved on the inside of the ring with the words entrusted with the gospel. So if there is such a thing as a life verse, I don't necessarily have one, but if there is a guiding model to my life, it is here. 1 Timothy 2, 3, and 4. That our appeal would not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please men, but to please God and test our hearts. Now he's writing to Christians. He's talking about his apostolic ministry. He said, I have been entrusted with the gospel. What does it mean to hold something in trust? To be entrusted with something. Take care of it. Make sure it stays pure. Take care of it. Make sure what? Stays pure. Stays pure. Be a steward of it. Be a steward of it. It is precious and valuable. Precious and valuable. You, 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 if you're entrusted with something, it is a whole person commitment to guard that trust. Right? Someone trusts you. Huh? Someone trusts you. Someone trusts you. Okay. Friends, we have been entrusted with the gospel. In Christ. That's a huge challenge, isn't it? Entrusted with the gospel. In an age where there are a million voices you can listen to, we've been entrusted with the gospel. Do we know the gospel? Are we able to defend it, declare it, uh, uh, proclaim it, uh, help people grow in it? So, I, I really, I take to heart these words from my own life, and I commend them to you as well. He goes on and says, we didn't come flattering you. We didn't come saying what you wanted to hear. We came to seek the glory of God, to proclaim to you the word of God without compromise. Okay? Um, Verse 7, for while we were were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of our own children, so being affectionately desirous of you, you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel, but also our own lives because you've become dear to us. Wow. You hear his pastoral heart for the people? Become like children to me. Uh, I want to share my life with you. I want to shepherd you. So he's reminding him, I didn't abandon you. There were circumstances he couldn't necessarily control, but he still holds this apostolic affection for them. And he goes on about what he's been doing and who they are. Look at verse 17. What, what, how does, your, how does your, your translation use verse 17? First part. We brethren. Just read the whole thing. So we brethren, having been taken away from you for a short while, person not very well, more eager with great desire to see you. Okay. We were taken away. Okay. Who has who has uh, another version? Torn away. We were torn away. Somebody have what is it? King James. Being taken from you. Being taken from you. Okay. There's, there's emotional language here. There's, there's committal language here. We were torn away, taken away. Does it sound like he wanted to leave? No. We were for a short time in person, but not in heart or not in spirit. He is saying, look, I have not forgotten you. Not in my heart. I hold you close. I love you. I'm affectionate towards you. I want to share my life with you. I'm pleased by what is happening because the gospel is taking over your lives. Okay? This is a 
a great pastoral letter that he's writing. He wants them to know, verses 19 to 20, how important they have come to him, become to him. Okay? Uh, you know, Paul, <laughs> I like Paul how he just, not afraid to get down in the nitty gritty of your folks. He's basically saying, look, I love you. My heart yearns to be with you. And I long to have this ministry among you. Um, would it be that we had that same affection one for another? Uh, on an ongoing basis. I see a lot of evidence of it. I think we'd all agree we'd like to see even more. <laughs> we'd like to see growth upon growth, right? Not just ever get to a status quo where we stop. So he talks about how I, I couldn't wait anymore, so I had to hear, and, and we'll, we'll just kind of skip over that, but I have not forgotten you. And then he's going to give some tough words about instructions on holy and righteous living. This really starts to turn us to chapter 4. Now keep in mind the context. The context of first century Roman Empire life was very permissive. In fact, many of the religions encouraged some type of sexual practice, some type of sexual expression. Okay? And so if you've been freed out of that, when you go to the temple to commit all kinds of sordid sins, and then you're redeemed and you come to Christ, there's a lifestyle change that needs to come, right? Because of transformation. But not all the believers were getting it. We still weren't making that clear thing. Look, sanctification is a, an event and a process. Sanctification declares us that we are holy in God's sight, but now it's a process of becoming holy in our practice. Okay? So sanctification is something we all go through. So I like to tell people when I'm talking to them, look, they come to me and they need counsel. They say, I don't have a bag of rocks here. I'm not looking to chuck anything at you. Let's go to the cross. Let's go to the Word. All of us need to continue to grow. So he has to get very clear about what he wants to say to them. So verse 4. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus Christ that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, so he recognizes there's some growth, that you do so more and more. And now he's going to give them instructions. And he's going to, as it were, hit them where they live. He's going to talk about sexual purity. <clears throat> He's going to talk about loving one another. He's going to talk about working hard, earning your own life. Don't be lazy. Okay? So imagine if you were a pastor, you're an evangelist, you're writing a letter to the city that the members of the church have been involved in sordid practices, now come to Christ, but they haven't broken away yet completely. How would you write to them? And he does so in a very blunt way. Very direct way. Okay? For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Okay? Becoming holy. Sanctification comes from that word root. This means to be holy or becoming holy or to be set apart. Set your lives apart for God. Be holy for God. God's will is your sanctification. You might say, well, what is the will of God for my life? Well, here's one. Sanctification. Grow in holiness. It's not, it's not difficult. That each of you abstain from sexual immorality. One of the God's top tens, right? Do not commit adultery. Um, this comes from the word porneia, where we get the word pornography, but it's not just that sin. It refers to this whole family of sins, if you will, that are out 
outside of God's designed expression in marriage. Okay? Anything outside of that is pornate. Forbid. It's sinful. Christians should not be involved in it in any measure. Okay? Um, really, any, any sexual activity outside of heterosexual marriage is pornate. That Paul is saying, do not be involved in. Okay? That each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Now the language is a bit coded here. Because he's mainly talking to men. But it would apply to all believers. He's basically saying men control yourselves. Okay? Um, and there's even some translations that say it refers to a man's private parts. So, don't act and use your body in a way that shows that you are still involved with these pagan gods and goddesses, but use your body in a way that shows that you are now in Christ, and it's God's will that you be holy. And, you know, we don't like to talk about these things. They're right there in the Word of God. It's right there for us. What is God's will? You be holy. That you control yourself. Verse 5, not in the passion of lust, just like the Gentiles who do not know God. That you do not transgress and wrong your brother in this matter. Because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand. And solemnly warmed you. For God has not called us to impurity, but in holiness. This is not... A, a book that would be entitled, How to Win Friends and Influence People. This is a book that is entitled, How to Become Like Jesus Christ and Change the World. It's a much higher call. Use the beautiful gift that God has given you, which is your body, which includes all, all that you are as a person. For the glory of God. That means that God is not a prude in the sense that He doesn't ever want us to talk about sexual matters. No. He created us as sexual beings. And because He's the giver of the gift, He has the right to set limits on the using of the gift. And it's very clear. Marriage. Period. End of paragraph. Okay? And that is for the well-being of humanity. It's for the well-being of the person. It's for the well-being of the continuation of the human race. It is part of God's good gift. But he has to talk bluntly to this group of young believers. Knock it off. Put away the crowd. And walk in a holy way. Maybe, just maybe, we don't coach ourselves or coach our young people enough in this area, or even coach our old people in this area enough. Say, look, it's not as if God doesn't ever come up with the idea of being sexual. He created us that way. Male and female. And not only that, when He created a male and female, the female was brought to the male. What happened? All of creation was in the park celebrating. Right? I'm serious. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. And there is joy in creation. God Himself is clapping His hands, as it were. Okay? Oh, the joy of what He has created. It's a beautiful thing. I think we have given up too soon in sharing the beauty of God's new marriage. And we've capitulated to the culture. Well, we have so much more to offer than the devil can ever trick people into. Right? 
is not a class where we talk about how to have a beautiful and wonderful marriage. But if you want to have a beautiful and wonderful marriage, follow 1 Thessalonians 4. He goes on and talks about betrayal, <clears throat> defrauding. Whoever disregards this disregards not man that God who gave his Holy Spirit. But verse 6, let no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. What does it mean to defraud someone? We still use the word today. What does it mean to defraud somebody? Cheat, lie. Basically, you're doing something that you're not willing to do yourself. Maybe. Good idea. Like Cheating, lying, that idea. To defraud someone is to take something from them that doesn't belong to you. Right? Stealing? Yeah, stealing. So think about the context of male and female, marital intimacy. Okay? To defraud your brother is to take something that doesn't belong to you. And he's talking about sex. So don't defraud your brother. Be faithful to your spouse. If I cheat on my wife, I'm not only defrauding my wife, I am defrauding someone else's wife and another brother. Because I'm taking something that doesn't belong to me. Okay? And then I'm not giving what belongs to my spouse. This is serious stuff. Paul is he's warning the church that God will judge those who do not follow these things. Okay? So we would all agree then that maybe we need to talk about this a little more today in the churches because there's some defrauding going on. Okay? If it's true that the majority of evangelical men in America have not only been exposed to pornography, but at times have been hooked on pornography, there's a whole lot of defrauding going on. And we're violating the Thessalonians 4. And we wonder why the church is powerless. Okay? What is God's will for our lives? Sanctification that you avoid these things. These laying out. Okay? Control yourselves. Use the gift that God has given you for the ways in which God designed, period, in the paragraph. Yes, of course, there's grace. The gospel is a beautiful thing. But the gospel never empowers us to disobey. The gospel never empowers us to be lazy. The gospel always empowers us to overcome, to grow, to obey more, to love God more. Okay? Grace is never to be abused to use something in a way that God didn't intend. Grace will always empower so that whatever we have, we will use it in a way that God intended so that we will be the blessed and most blessed of all. Yeah. It's all sin against God. Yes. You know, everything like that, that's the ultimate thing. Right. Right. <laughs> so, he, he talks about God's will. He talks about the reality of who we are as human beings. He talks about the reality of God's judgment. And these are things we're not supposed to talk about today, right? We're supposed to talk about the happy things about, you know, a bigger house, a bigger life, and, you know, all this other stuff. Okay? That wasn't Paul's concern. His concern was for much more important matters. We shouldn't take it lightly. I, I, I can't know because I'm not in the council of God. But how many ministers, missionaries, husbands, elders, deacons, 
have ruined their lives and ministries. Because of First Thessalonians. And we should almost get on our knees and weep. Because it's too many. Right? It's too many. Sin has sin has brought about a huge cost. A huge, huge payment of destruction. Now we should this is why we need to encourage each other to say, look, stay firm, stay strong, stay pure. Uh, do what God says. It's always for our benefit. Well, he does this in the context then after giving some very tough language on the whole idea of marital intimacy and, and lack thereof. What does he say? Verses 9 and 10. Now concerning brotherly love. You see it in the context of defrauding? Don't defraud. But concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you for yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. But we urge you, brothers, he says you're doing it, but verse 10 at the end, but we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that we may walk, walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. You see how these fit together? If I'm channeling the gifts, passions, desires that God has given me in the proper ways is because I love God. It will show love to my brothers. If I'm showing love to my brothers, I'm going to live in a way that is also honoring to them. Right? Instead of just saying, well, they can just pull me along. You know? Showing love shows up in so many areas, but it, it talks about what is God's will, your sanctification, your maturity, growing in Christ. So, Far from being a roving evangelist who just came to fleece them and then took off, he's giving them a much more powerful message than what they want to hear. He's telling them what they don't want to hear, but what they need to hear. And God requires holiness, because he's a holy God. Because there is the wrath of God to come. Okay? And if we're in Christ, we're not going to be objects of his wrath. But does that mean we could just go and abuse his grace and impunity? Not if we understand grace. Not if we understand His commandments. And we won't want to anyway. Because if you have a new heart, new affection, you want to avoid those former things. And your heart wants to be inflamed by the things of God. Okay? Let me just stop there for a minute. Um, give you a chance. If you, any comments you might want to bring or any thoughts. Because this is as radical today in our culture as it would have been in Paul's culture in the first century. Any thoughts? I have not had a brother of any kind that has said to me, Are you pure? How's your purity? And I think we failed greatly. Mm. Why do you think that is? No, we failed greatly. We failed greatly. What's taboo? We won't talk about it. We won't talk about it. Okay. A lot of people are because a lot of people are involved in the same sin, right? Yeah. And it's really hard to encourage someone out of a sin that you're in the midst of, right? Other thoughts? The world doesn't believe that young men or women can be pure. <clears throat> we had a, a youth pastor, and I think he was probably in his late, late 20s, 
And he met a girl from our church, and and uh, they never kissed, they never anything until the wedding day. My husband just thought that was absolutely ludicrous. He just thought, that can't be. That's what I'm telling you. This is what the Bible calls you to be, you know? Yep. So not only do they say that they don't think it's possible, now they teach it's not even desirable. Desirable. Right? It's interesting, most of the studies that have been done for people living together, that's yeah. helped them to get married, yeah. they get divorced. They get divorced much higher yes. And as much out as they would five years together, within five years they separate. Because, I don't have the word here, they defrauded one another before the marriage. No respect. And that is not a foundation for building a marriage. Right? It's, you know, God's way is countercultural. But it's something you never regret, doing God's way. Yeah. We don't ask because we wouldn't know how to handle it if they were honest, maybe. And it'd be I said be. It'd be a messy situation to deal with. I mean, we just went to culture like say, don't dare tread on me, right? So who, who are you to say what, what fur? I mean, but Paul wasn't afraid to say what fur. It got him in trouble. But he said it, right? And we're afraid to say it in the culture. And we're afraid to say it today when transgenderism is destroying one life after another. Are we going to stand up and say, no, no, I'm not going to go along with it. I can't. Don't ask me to lie to cover up your sin. Okay, that's what it's coming down to. Are we willing to do it that way? I don't know. I hope so. In some ways, my job is easier because it's expected of me, so if I do it, they'll say, oh, he's just a pastor. He has to say it. Right? I know that. I know that it's, it's, I'm in a unique situation. But I'm still going to say it. I'm, I'm just going to share something here because Carol and I were committed to this. First of all, we were committed individually long before we met that we would keep ourselves pure. And we were both involved in ministry, and we met on the mission field, and we kept very, very, how would you say, safe, very careful safeguards to how we appeared to others, how much time we would be together. We were accountable to my field leader, to his field leader. We had requirements of how long we had to be engaged before we could get married. We had to have... Uh, uh, married pre-marriage counseling we had to have before we could even announce we were married, you know. But we were both committed covenantally to God and to our future spouses that we would keep ourselves pure until we got married, and we did. And we're going to celebrate 30 years in May. And I can tell you we haven't missed a thing because we came into our marriage pure and committed to each other. Okay. And I have prayed many times over the years, and I'm serious when I say this. I'll hear of another grievous situation where a brother in Christ has fallen. And I've told the Lord many times, Lord, I would rather that you hit me with a truck than that you allow me to violate my covenant relationship with my wife before you. And I'm serious. I would rather die in a terrible accident than betray my marriage. And 
when I talk to marriage, uh, couples getting ready for marriage, I share that with them. I say, this is what I'm calling you to. This is what I'm challenging you to. Right now, before each other and before me, you make that commitment. Because the divorce rate is too high. Because of all the defrauding that goes on. Build your marriage on God's principles and it will stay firm. And I sleep peacefully at night. And that's, that's a gift from God. You know, to sleep peacefully at night because you don't have things to do. Now, again, there's grace. There's lavish grace to forgive. But grace will forgive and empower and overcome and grow. And that's our hope. And God can give the renewing of the mind that leads to the renewing of the hate. That's the hope we have in the gospel. Amen. But why not start out preaching it from the beginning? Hey, it's better to just do it right from the beginning. Okay? I was wondering a lot application of this. If we, I don't know what we're doing here at this church, but I think that, that mess of that teaching should start no later than the time that young people are starting to be trapped in the opposite sex immediately. Because we know we know what that this problem starts very young these days. Right. I think they said most kids now by seven years old have already been exposed to pornography. Yeah. So thirteen is too late. Or eleven is too late. But so age appropriate education Navigators have a great series on this subject about helping boys and girls to understand who they are as boys and girls and as their body develops and as they become mature and what to expect. It's a very good series. It's age-appropriate. And I would commend it to parents and grandparents to make it available to the kids. Uh, it's always very uh, upholding the beauty of God's plan, the wonder what it is to be a boy or a girl, what it is to develop, what it is to mature, what it is to become married, what it is to be a family, all within the context of what you're talking about, this holiness and purity. Um, but then a, a great apologetic is just simply marriage is staying together and showing how wonderful marriage really is. Right? I'm convinced going forward in our sinful culture, Christians that stay happily married to each other, faithfully married to each other, is going to be a great testimony of the gospel. Because I just heard this last week of, I don't even remember the names, I don't want to remember the names, but it was a, a couple that was involved in some type of worship ministry, and they've got books, and they've got, and they just decided that after being married for so long, they've not reached a new transition in their relationship. Like, shut up. <laughs> the only transition you have is the greater holiness, not and commitment, not, well, we'll still love each other, but we've drifted apart. Those are the times I have a visceral reaction because it's just like, no, you can't improve on God's plan, you know? And it's just caving to the culture. And we got to stop doing that. Okay? All right. We should move on. I don't think we'll finish today, I want, but I do want to do the next point here. Comfort and encouragement for those who are suffering. He tells them in chapter 1, verse 6, he knows that they're suffering. He tells them in chapter 1, verse 10, his ministry has not been in vain. Their ministry will not be in vain. If we have to suffer in Christ, it will not be in vain. And he tells them in chapter 2, look at it, verse, uh, let's go to 13 to 16. Chapter 2. And we also thank God constantly for this, 
that when you received the word from God, a word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you, believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins, the wrath has come upon them at last. He's telling them, expect to be persecuted for the sake of the gospel and know that your brothers are already going under persecution in other places. It is the normal experience of the gospel. So persevere. Recognize that suffering and persecution and all this stuff will happen because you are a believer. So press on. Let that be encouragement to you because God's keeping track. And His wrath will come. And that's a good word for us today. To encourage each other to stand firm in the gospel, lovingly, devotedly, firmly, joyfully, even if we have to suffer, because God's keeping track. And He's a pretty good account. <laughs> he's going to balance the books real well at the end. And we don't have to worry about injustice. <clears throat> Because Jesus took the injustice upon himself. He didn't deserve, right? But he took our sin, died for us. Justice has been satisfied. He'll take care of us. If we would stand firm in him. So that's an encouragement to them. And then I'm just going to touch on the last one because I want to circle back. I shouldn't use that term. I'm going to come back to it next week and we'll, we'll follow up. But the Lord will come back. And this last for, uh, thing is what I want to spend time on because Paul is going to spend the rest of the letter, 1 Thessalonians, and most of 2 Thessalonians, talking about the return of Christ. It was of such importance to them in the first century and they have, were so full of misunderstandings that he wants to set it clear. Now, he will not answer every question that we will want him to answer. But he will give us everything we need to know to stand firm and to persevere. Okay? So, one of the questions that would happen, Paul's raced through town, preached the gospel, people come to faith in Christ, and before Paul's had a chance to come back, some of the believers have died. In the meantime, he's talked about Christ coming back. So what's happened to them? They weren't alive when Christ came back. What's going to happen to them? And that's the context of this passage in 1 Thessalonians 4, which is why it is often read at funerals, because that was its original intention, to give encouragement to believers who have lost loved ones in the Lord, what's going to happen to them? And the short answer is, they're going to be just fine. <laughs> okay? So encourage one another with these words. <clears throat> but, look, but just listen to what Paul would say. Keeping in mind the context, a suffering, persecuted church that's young... That has seen Paul leave them when time got difficult. He's commanding them to act holy, love one another, earn your own living. And now he says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, and grieve about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. 
For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of the archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another. Tucked within there is the promise of the resurrection. Resurrection of the body. The full salvation that saints will experience, body and soul, when Jesus comes back. But it's the idea that they will not be forgotten. The ones in the Lord who have died, not only will not be forgotten, they're in the presence of the Lord. And their bodies will be resurrected one day, glorified in this intermediate state, which we're not, you know, not quite sure about. Of those that have died and not yet experienced the resurrection, or maybe they have, and each one does it individually. I, my mind starts to bend at this point, trying to figure out how it all works together. But what I do know is this was a word of hope to a grieving church. Salvation is realized for all those who died before us in Christ. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Can you hear how much encouragement that would have brought to a struggling, persecuted young church in need of such exhortation? But then what about us today? I think we need it as well. Because we throw a lot around a lot of silly expressions as a culture. I was reading yesterday about some unnamed celebrity who had been divorced, but who still loved the spouse at the end, and now the spouse is dead, and this person wrote, well, I'll see you in the next life. Probably not. I, I mean, I'm not God, but there's no evidence in either person's life to lead me to believe that there was new birth. That there was fruit of the Spirit. But we say things like that. Does that bring real comfort? They're in a better place. Or their suffering is over. Or, or, or... It may bring you comfort, but not them. <laughs> right. And that... I'm sorry. Go ahead. an apologist that is a Christian. He, this young daughter, this like Susan was her name, and he was just grieving, just struggling. And he said, God always speaks to me through his words, and he said, I heard him say, Susan's with me, it's okay. Change his whole perspective. Yeah. Because the body, present with the Lord. Absolutely. He never even, being a strong, you know, he didn't even think about that for his life. But also, so we'll talk more about this next week, and we'll present different viewpoints on how to understand this, because Christians have not always been in agreement. We'll put them on the board. We'll have a discussion about it. We'll keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, because if we haven't figured it out in 2,000 years, we might not next year, next week during 45 minutes. That's your job. We will at least wrestle with it as we come back together. I started earlier today, so I need to make sure I uh, finish approximately about an hour into it. Thanks for a good discussion. Let us pray. So, Father, you've given us a tough word today, but we thank you for that. I thank you that you love us so much that you're not afraid to tell us the truth. Because you are the truth. But because you want us to walk in truth and to grow in truth and to reflect and manifest the truth more and more in our lives. Father, I pray for this body of believers. I pray for this church. It would be a pure church. And I pray that we would have an impact far beyond our numbers in this community of promoting holiness and sanctification and righteous living. And so we pray that each of us would take seriously what we've heard today in our own 
individual application, single or married, to recognize what it is to walk in holiness with the people of God. Would you strengthen us for that, Father? Would you continue to change our thinking, which changes our behavior? And would you give great glory as you do? As we commit ourselves to you and ask for your peace now as we depart. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, everyone.